This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. The tech world tends to be run by men. That's the case in Colorado. So a few years ago, two Boulder investors decided to give women a boost. They started an accelerator for businesses that have at least one woman in charge. Lee Mayer was one of the first entrepreneurs through the door. She started her company Havenly when she couldn't find a good home decorator. So I moved, I wanted my place to be decorated, and I could not find anyone that was willing to do it for me. Um, And I also felt completely incompetent at doing it by myself. And so I started Havenly. Havenly matches customers with interior designers online and then helps clients buy furniture and pick decorative touches. When Lee Mayer went into the business accelerator, Havenly had four employees. Today it has about 40, many of them women. In the company's industrial North Denver office, Shelby Gerard sits at a long table going over a mock-up of a client's living room. I kind of took cues from the client's photos to create a realistic vision of their room. So she had her mindset on a navy velvet sofa, so that was like the staple piece we worked around. She has a really cool old house with like beautiful molding and windows and all this really pretty detail we can kind of play up. Havenly's success is a model for the tech accelerator called Merge Lane. Today, we'll talk about opportunities for female entrepreneurs in Colorado with Merge Lane's co-founder, Sue Heilbrunner. She'll also tell us about a couple of Colorado companies in the next round, which starts this spring. Sue, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Tell me about a time where you thought this field needs more women. You know, the truth is, I have lived an entire career as a lawyer and then as a startup operator without really paying much attention to the fact that I was a woman in business. And there was a time when that actually became aggressive. You know, I used to get inquiries to be on panels and people would actually say, we really want a woman, so would you do this? And that, that has two edges to it. I mean, on one hand, I appreciate the vote for diversity. On the other hand, I want to be on the panel because I'm a great contributor to the panel, regardless of gender or anything else. But about three years ago, I went to a panel at a conference, and it was a great conference and a great panel. The panel was on marketing, and I looked at the stage, and it was on marketing, right? So it wasn't on, you know, it wasn't on a wasn't on golf. It was on a topic where there are many, many women who could have been very, very eloquent contributors. And there were six middle-aged men all actually wearing exactly the same outfit, sort of a button-down, a navy jacket, and gray slacks. And I just thought, it's just too much. I mean, at that time, I was 47 years old, and I thought, we just should be past this. And if I'm not going to do something to change the balance Whom can I depend on to do it if it's not me? So you had uh, more to do to get to the point that you uh, envisioned, the ideal. Uh, Merge Lane gets equity in the companies that you help. Just briefly, what does Merge Lane do for the businesses that it selects? Sure. And let me just... Not everyone knows what a startup accelerator is. So Merge Lane makes investments in eight to 10 companies a year and takes a percentage of equity in exchange for the investment plus the program. And in answer to your question, 
we offer them a range of inputs to help them in three months accomplish what they might otherwise accomplish in two years in their business. That's a combination of, first, the operators of MergeLane. My partner and I and our program director have spent decades helping startups accelerate their growth. Second, we have 175 mentors, speakers, and coaches that are committed to working with these companies with at least one female in leadership. They get the benefit of that. Third, just listening to the input from Lee Mayer and her colleagues at Havenly, they get a fantastic alumni network into which they can tap during and after the program. Paint a picture of what a, a mentor might do with one of the folks you're working with. Sure. First, what we try to do is match mentors who have a passion for the business and the focus of the business as well as the team. We believe that teams and people are as important as the content focus of a business. Second, we ask mentors to make a commitment to go deep with the business. They commit to spending at least an hour per week for the 12 weeks of our program with a company they may choose to lead mentor during the course of the program. They may be committing or contributing their intellect, their experience, their network. Essentially, what they're looking for is not to guide or take over or dominate, but to give these teams and these, these leaders extra tools in their arsenal to learn ways that they can skip over incremental growth and achieve geometric growth as a function of getting this focused attention. And in the end, do you make money on your investment? Well, Andrea, let's all hope so, right? Because <laughs> number one, we as program directors and as the founders of MergeLane are investors in MergeLane. Number two, we have another 50 or 60 mentors who have made investments in the MergeLane fund and are therefore investors in our company. And our primary goal is to have a fiduciary responsibility to these investors. Now, the great thing about what we do is our interests in helping our investors make money are, to are totally aligned with the company's interests in succeeding. And that's what I really like about our business. If the companies win, our investors win. And in our case, because of our mission, the entire ecosystem wins. Because what we want to establish is investing in women isn't just the right thing to do, but it's the smart thing to do. And the data support that. Studies show women don't get venture capital funding at nearly the same rate as men. Here's one finding. Of venture-funded businesses in the U.S., only 15% had women on the executive team. That's from a study done by Babson College a few years ago. It's trending up slowly. Um, but Lee Mayer of Havenly says she thinks being a woman, and especially a young woman of color, was one reason Havenly struggled to get seed funding for a while. Our first angel round was really hard. Some of that had to do with the fact that we were here. Some of that had to do with the fact that we were in e-commerce. Some of that probably had to do with the fact that I wasn't very well connected. But, you know, it was also, it's, I get it. I don't look a lot like the other people that are raising money here. I'm not in my mid-40s. I'm not a white dude in a hoodie. Um, and I'm not white. And I don't ever wear hoodies. I ever she never wears a hoodie. And uh, in that same Babson study, only 3% of companies that got early funding had a female CEO. How much of this has to do with what Lee Mayer talked about? Well, first of all, raising money for anyone is incredibly difficult. So if you listen to the stories that Lee tells or the stories that a CEO like Promise Felon of Tap Influence, which is headquartered in, here in Denver, if they you listen to their stories, they do 
hundreds of meetings to close a typical Series A round, like the one that Lee closed and the one that Tap Influence closed quite a while back. But it's hard for everyone. I was just with a male CEO yesterday in an incredibly successful company talking about the difficulty of putting together his A round. First and foremost, it's hard. Secondly, I think that we are doing this merge lane thing to close the gap, to change the ratio. That was our mission. We didn't know if we were going to change the world, but we really thought that, look, the data is terrible. You read some of it, right? It's not good. The gaps are enormous. And we thought, well, I mean, we don't know if we can change the world, but we know we can make investments in 15 women-led companies a year, and just that can turn 8% into 12% in a relatively short time. We're doing what we can because we think it's the right thing to do and the smart thing to do. And what I'll say is people who are as incredibly tenacious as Lee Mayer, as smart as she is, and I love that she says she's not that well connected because you should check out her network. Mm-hmm. It's pretty powerful now. Those people end up raising money if they have solid businesses and solid teams like Havenly and many of the other companies in which we're invested have. Um, you referred earlier to Series A. That's the initial funding you need. Um, yeah, let me actually, the first funding a company usually raises, excuse me, I shouldn't use those inside baseball terms, is called a seed round. There may even be a friends and family round before that. A Series A round typically is Somewhere these numbers are floating somewhere between three and ten million, and actually usually happens in the second or third year of business for a startup. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're speaking with Sue Heilbrunner. She's a co-founder of Merge Lane, a startup accelerator based in Boulder for companies run by women. Um, and let's uh, talk about uh, research uh, that women are more likely to invest in women. How hard is it to find other women who want to be venture capitalists or angel investors? Well, for us, it hasn't been that hard. I mean, we have 50 to 60 investors. We love the fact that of our investors in Mergelane, 50% of our investors are female. So, Part of this is about education. We spend a lot of time with what are called, and I'll put this in quotes, angel investors, which are individual people who are interested in making investments in startup companies. We help educate them, show them things that they should be paying attention to. There are lots of other organizations in the United States and the world that are doing the same thing. I think it is a matter of time until those angels have good outcomes, until women are more knowledgeable and engaged, not only as investors, but also as successful exiting operators. And they end up changing the ratios in these VC firms. I actually feel incredibly optimistic just with what we've seen in the last three years since I've been paying attention to this. Uh, How long will it take if you had to guess? That's a great question. When we started Merge Lane, our goal was to be obsolete. We we just didn't want to be in this mission. I mean, it's interesting in these marches. I thought the signs were the women who were not, you know, millennials. They're signs that said, I can't believe I'm still protesting. These women's marches just last weekend. Exactly. I just thought that was hilarious and, and really poignant. But our goal really is to be obsolete. I don't know. I think in 10 to 15 years, we're going to start seeing ratios of women in VC firms that go from 15 to 25 percent. We'll start seeing female founded companies somewhere in the 20 percent of all 
companies that are getting investment. I think there are a couple things that are just, if you want to talk about them, I think there are lots of reasons why it's going to take more time. And one of them is that women aren't always creating companies that are looking for investment. So when we look at the data, something that we've routinely seen is that women tend not to be looking at the idea of creating $100 million businesses. They actually like being in business. They tend on average, based on wild generalizations of hundreds, if not thousands of people I've met with, to be okay with a company that's growing 10% year over year. They're not always thinking about that next unicorn. And that actually is an input that goes into this computation of this data that we're all looking at. So your goal isn't to get all women to, you know, create huge companies. Well, look, I mean, my goal is to help people who want to start great businesses start great businesses and enjoy their lives and create ideas that are sustainable and interesting to consumers and users that make good businesses and happy customers. That's my goal. I don't really hold the judgment that when we watch a show like Silicon Valley on HBO, I don't hold the judgment that having a $40 million exit after two years or one year is the be-all, end-all in terms of life success. Everybody has different ideas of what they want to get from starting their business. Now, Merge Lane focuses on companies that are, quote-unquote, investable. So we are looking at companies that ultimately could get VC backing. But lots of people have fantastic companies that aren't really laid out for VC backing. Hmm. We should say there's another organization, a little different from yours, called SheEO, love the name, that started raising money from women for female-run businesses in Colorado last fall. Um, Research also shows that firms that do invest in women-led businesses get more out of it. Uh, The Federal Small Business Administration studied this. What are your thoughts on that? When you say get more out of it, what do you mean? You <laughs> get a better return on yeah, their exactly. investment. Well, because I think we get a lot of a lot out of it. Yes, the data is really solid right now that female funded companies have, on average, higher returns. Thrilled to see that. By the way, Merge Lane is funded by the Small Business Administration. We've received two fifty thousand dollar grants over the last two years from the SBA. And I love that the SBA is focusing on accelerators because there's such a great multiplier effect taking tax dollars, putting it into companies whose sole mission is to grow other companies is just, it's fantastic. It's been hugely important to us in creating a sustainable organization called Merge Lane between now and what may be five years from now when we start seeing returns from investments in companies like Havenly. Let's zoom out a little. Um, Are there distinct strengths that women bring to businesses that may not, um, that men may not be able to bring? Yeah, I think this is a really hot topic right now and one that I'm extremely focused on. So we are hearing a lot more about conscious businesses and conscious leadership. And really what that comes down to is this topic I spend a lot of time on is authentic leaderships and companies that are run on the backbone of integrity and candor in the office. We're seeing a lot more thought put into the fact that if you want to build a great company, you need to build people who are also growing in line with or ahead of the success of the company. And again, not to generalize, there are tons of men who care about all these issues, but I do see in the leadership teams that I work with that women uniquely are able to create spaces and environments where employees feel safe 
and welcome to bring their full authentic selves into the office. And I think it's creating way more innovation in these female-led companies. Would you say there's one quality um, that you see in the women who make it to the top? (laughs) Well, I mean, honestly, I think it's the same quality as you see in all people who make it to the top. Hmm. And that quality is they just don't give up. Now, I think when you see women who have this characteristic of just dogged tenacity, it sometimes looks more pleasant than it does in a doggedly tenacious guy because they're more aware of how other people are receiving them in the world. So they tend to be friendlier, more cheerful. They tend to be funnier. But at bottom, they are always the people who, when they see roadblocks, are able either to run right through them or to cautiously, carefully, but still persistently run around them. How do the opportunities for women in Colorado compare to those in big hubs like New York and Silicon Valley? Yeah, well, one thing that's clear is that Our largest investor in the state of Colorado, I think, I mean, certainly our largest early stage investor, I I actually don't want to be wrong about that, but let's just say a very big investor in Colorado is the Foundry Group. And their venture capital firm is headquartered in Boulder. The Foundry Group's recent, recent investments have been at least half in companies that have female CEOs. I don't have all the companies listed. Mattermark is a big investment. Havenly is a big investment of the Foundry Group. They recently made an investment in a company that's focused in the wedding space. So they really actually are leaning in. I don't know if it's intentional. I'm sure they're making these decisions like we are because they view them as great investment decisions. So if we look just at that number one source, it's actually extremely encouraging. And I think they set the pace and the tone for our investments in our state. I think it's why we are seeing CEO, which has three hubs in the U.S. as its starting point. Vicki Saunders has done an amazing thing with CEO. And Colorado is one of its hubs that's supporting this effort. So I think we're seeing individuals and organizations and mentors who can help drive the growth of our companies way more aware of this issue, not only talking the talk, but they're walking the walk with their time and their money. So right now, I think it's a great place to be a female entrepreneur. So you're getting close to announcing your next class of companies, and I understand you can tell us about a couple of them today. Tell me about Recovery Warriors. Recovery Warriors is a really interesting one for us. It's very unique. Jessica Raymond is the CEO of this company, and what Jessica is focused on is creating resources in wellness to support people in the digital age. It's her belief that The age of finding just the right therapist and going in person and visiting with a therapist, that's still incredibly important to lots of people, and lots of people use that resource. But she believes the digital landscape is going to shift that behavior to provide more people on-demand wellness tools and resources when they need them at home. Her first target was to pay attention to an issue that affects predominantly women, which is eating disorders. And what's amazing about Jessica as the CEO of this company is building resources, content, and tools for eating disorders. She's accumulated an audience of 300,000 people as a single founder around this topic. She's looking next to build an app to support wellness more broadly, not limited to eating disorders. And I'm really optimistic about her ability to build an audience and to support those people. 
Just to wrap up, I'm interested in how you pick these companies. How important is it to you that the company have a social mission? We like to pick really good people because we like working with good people. I think if it ended up being a business that was focused on vice, I was just talking to a company that was in the area of e-cigarettes, I deem it extremely unlikely that we'd choose a vice company. But we really like the idea and believe that our primary mission focus or impact is around supporting female leaders. And if female leaders want to sell on-demand gifts that they think they're distributing in a really unique way that may not make for cleaner water in developing countries, we're okay with that because we believe that our world generally benefits from having more females that are supporting great businesses, regardless of what the themes of those companies are. And we have a couple of other companies that are in your next class on our website. Sue, thanks for being with us. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. Sue Heilbrunner is a co-founder of Merge Lane, a startup accelerator based in Boulder for companies run by women. We talked about opportunities for female entrepreneurs in Colorado and also heard from Lee Mayer, the CEO of the Denver company Havenly. Coming up, how people perceive aging and beauty and one sculptor's view as she's gotten older. You're listening to CPR's Colorado Matters. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Our culture is obsessed with youth. At least that's how Colorado Springs sculptor Joe Hart sees it. Hart, who's 58, believes there's beauty in getting older, but she's not convinced others share that view. It's the focus of her art show, The Older We Get, and it's up at the Manitou Art Center in Manitou Springs through February 12th. Joe, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I understand this topic of how society treats older women has been on your mind for a while. What happened that sparked the idea for a show? I think it's the um, almost an everyday uh, experience. It's been an idea that's been, um, I've been niggling around in my mind and just observing and also experiencing um, how women are treated, how I'm treated differently um, that I feel because maybe of my age, but also observing how uh, young women or uh, women of all ages, how they're treated in different scenarios, just even at the grocery store or, um, you know, waiting to be waited on somewhere at the doctor's office that, you know, I just have witnessed these different scenarios. And I guess it's just sort of coming to terms with myself aging, you know, as I'm getting older. Can you give and me an, embracing and embracing that? Sorry. Can you give me an example of how or a time when you may have been treated differently because of your age? Um. Well, it's of my opinion only, of course. But I was over. Um, it was at uh, during Christmas time, and I was at a store for younger people purchasing a gift, and um, I was waiting for a long time to be waiting on at the counter while. The sales people were not really paying attention. And then some young people came up to the counter, and right away they were waited on. And 
it to me it felt like it was a direct um response to their age and my age because I was older and really seemed out of place at that store. You've spoken with other women uh, ranging in ages. What were some of the things they told you about how their age influenced the way others treat them? I think that um, I have a lot of younger friends. I have a daughter and her friends in their 20s. And um, I think they have, they know that when they are um, at different places, a store or the bank or whatever, that compared to somebody standing next to them, they have witnessed or been a part of, you know, people, the person waiting on them before or getting attention before an older person. It's almost like um, women as they age in our culture here have become invisible. Mm-hmm. There are nearly a dozen sculptures in your exhibition. They all have a number on them, which represents a certain age. They're about a foot tall, a few inches wide. You describe them as part trophy, part bust. They all have uh, look like human figures, almost like an Oscar. And each one is made of porcelain. Why porcelain? Um, I love working with porcelain. Porcelain has um, a lot of strength um, when fired. But porcelain also, there's a fragility to it. So I think that, you know, as a woman, there's strength and fragility. And I liked, you know, how that just sort of folds in together, that whole idea of a woman, um, what she's made of and um, what she has had to become. And they have breasts on both sides of the figures. Why? Mm -hmm. I guess I... As they are viewed in a 360, I wanted, I wanted their the viewer to really understand that this is a woman. That uh, no matter the age, that it's something to be proud of, to have respect for this woman, um, for this award trophy t- um, sculpture. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm speaking with Colorado Springs artist Joe Hart. Her art show is The Older We Get at the Manitou Art Center in Manitou Springs. It's a commentary on how women and aging are viewed in American culture. Let's talk about some of the individual sculptures. As we said, uh, they all have a number on them. Describe what Sculpture 18 looks like. Um, 18 is primarily white um, with the idea of um, a purity coming into age. She has, and I'm going to call these sculptures she as if it's a person, realizing it's not, but um, she has wings that are gold-tipped, so it's like it's time for her to start making her own life coming into adulthood. And there's a like I said, a purity, a virginal quality to this figure. And we have photos of these works at CPRnews.org. The highest number in this collection is 76. What does that sculpture look like? Um, she is um, has a crackling. I used a crackling effect in the glazing process. And to, you know, address the idea of aging... And a little bit slumped over, um, 
all the figures have, all the sculptures have a, a lot of the same idea, the same type of base and bust form. But she's a little slumped over, has lived a life, um, hopefully will continue to live a good life. I think there's still beauty in this sculpture because of the coloring, even though there is some crackling effect to it, that there's beauty in that aging process. Which sculpture would you say best represents you? Um, There is a sculpture that uh, is called, one of the name is, oh, Gams of Free Range. I'm reading off my little paper here. <laughs> And it's, I believe that figure is um, of the age of 50, 51, and tall and pale pink. But what is uh, I like about it is that there's clear tubing coming out of the top of where her head is. And it represents where, you know, a woman, um, I think... Oftentimes, no matter the circumstances in the, their 50s or whatever, has given a lot to uh, others, to their family, to their career, to their, um, uh, you know, parents maybe, uh, just have given and given and given. And that's what the tubes represent, Have you know, are the, all these portals that they've just given to others. And it's more of a time in the the uh, tubes are clear, and so it's more of a time of like, okay, it's time for me to take care of myself now. I'm of the age where maybe, hopefully my children don't need me as much. Um, I'm maybe at a place in my career or in my life that I don't have to give so much to others, but maybe focus on myself. I and can't... at the bottom of the school, uh, uh, oh, I'm sorry. No, keep going. At the bottom of the sculpture, there are these um, dancing, sort of dancing legs, sort of like, okay, kicking, uh, having a good time. It's time for me to sort of express myself now. I can relate to that number, by the way. It strikes me that men, as well as women, face stigmas around aging. The nonpartisan D.C.-based nonprofit Frameworks Institute did research around the topic and found that people generally have a negative view of getting older. Does focusing only on women really get to the root of this issue? Um, That's a good question, I think, Um, I focused on women. A lot of my work, uh, even previous to this this, um, show, is related to women. So I I think maybe it'll open, hopefully we'll open a conversation even for men in aging. But yes, I did focus just on women, maybe because it's more personal to me. Um, I can relate to it more. Um, I know a little bit more about it. Thanks for being with us. Okay, thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. Colorado Springs sculptor Joe Hart, her art show is The Older We Get. It's up at the Manitou Art Center in Manitou Springs through February 12th. Find photos of the artwork at cprnews.org. Coming up, an architect who's changed the face of Denver. He's honored this week. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Few architects have had as much of an impact on Denver skyline as Kurt Fentress. He designed the terminal at Denver International Airport, the Colorado Convention Center, Sports Authority Field at Mile High. Fentress will be inducted into the Colorado Business Hall of Fame tonight. We thought it'd be a good occasion to listen to his interview with Ryan Warner from 2010. At the time, the Colorado architect had just released his book, Touchstones of Design, Redefining Public Architecture. Kurt Fentress, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thanks. In this book, you write, I don't begin with a preconceived notion of what a building should be. It is not a sculpture. Tell us a little bit more about that philosophy, say for Denver International Airport. Well, you know, our practice is in the realm of public architecture, and the buildings are really about the people that use the buildings. People have needs. Like if you're going to the airport, you're going to catch an airplane. And so that building is about helping make that as easy and as comfortable and as clear as possible. In the case of the convention center, it's uh, making the experience of a conventioneer as pleasant as possible, easy to find the conferences, that sort of thing. The subtitle of the new book is Redefining Public Architecture. That's not a small thing to redefine public architecture. How do you think you've done that? We have a process that we go through uh, for designing public architecture that is uh, fairly simple, uh, and we call it the touchstones of design. And so it starts out with listening first and foremost, listening and trying to understand the needs of the client and the needs of the stakeholders involved. And the second thing is relating to the place and the culture. And by relating to the place and the culture, you embody something of that place into the design of the building. And that's a a very important aspect. We also try to discover what we call the natural order. The natural order or flow in a building is um, the purpose of that building. And that natural flow, if it can be made really simple and easy to understand, makes the experience of the user of the building much greater and makes it easier. It takes away the frustration of knowing where to go. When you enter the building, how to find the exhibits, how to find the meeting rooms, how to find the restrooms, or if you're going to, say, the airport, how to find the ticket counters, the security check-in, how to find the concourse and and where your plane is. Those are the touchstones. And every project has to meet those standards. Right. There are many others, but those are some of the few simple basics of how we design buildings. The biggest challenge, I think, in designing uh, buildings is, is the aspect of just listening and understanding what people need. I feel like this theme of of listening segues nicely into a quote in the book, Touchstones of Design. You say, one of the touchstones is to restrain the ego. You write, a building is not the autobiography of an architect. Does that mean that your personality shouldn't come through or that it just shouldn't be primary? Well, I think um, the design of a building, at least for me, is like, writing music and the writing of music is for the listener 
And so it's for the, the buildings are for the people. Certainly, one's personality is involved, but there's a greater audience out there. And it's not about the author of the music. It's about the people and the listening and, and hearing the music and experience in the building. Let me, let me bring this metaphor a step further, right? Um, so if it's music, I know when I'm hearing a Joni Mitchell song. You know, I know when I'm hearing you too. When I look at all of the various buildings that you have designed, I don't necessarily think, gosh, that immediately, that must be Kurt Fentress. I don't feel like there is a set Kurt Fentress style. Uh, is that true? Or is there something about all of these structures that would tip us off? Well, I think if you study them long and hard, maybe you find a lot of, some similarities that tie them all together. But for me, they're really about the people they're designed for. Whenever we're engaging in a new commission with, with uh, clients, we, we tell them that uh, you know all of our buildings look different. And the reason they all look different is because they're not about us. They're about the people we're designing them for. They're not our buildings. They're your buildings. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And our guest is the Denver architect Kurt Fentress the man who designed DIA, uh, Invesco Field at Mile High, the Colorado Convention Center, and uh, buildings around the country, around the world. Tell us the moment you came up with the idea of the tented roof at DIA. It's really the most iconic part of the airport. Well, we didn't design DIA, the airport. We designed um, the terminal, passenger terminal building. The the Jeppesen Terminal. The Jeppesen Terminal. That's that's a good clarification. I think that... um, Whenever we got that opportunity, we had actually been hired to be the architects to produce the working drawings. We were told that the building was uh, that we were going to complete was $75 million over budget and a year behind schedule, and that we had to fix that problem. And I say we, my partner Jim Bradburn and I at the time were sitting at the airport when we were given that assignment to bring it in under budget and see if we could correct the schedule. And so we asked, how long would we have to figure this out? And they said, well, three weeks. And if you have some different idea, they'd be interested in looking at it. And that the mayor at the time, Federico Pena, wasn't that happy with the design. We inquired what seemed to be the issue with the design and said it wasn't memorable. And so um, we set about... Jim and I set about to create a new design for the airport, and we just ended up turning things upside down, took the mechanical off the roof, put it in the basement. That helped change the schedule dramatically. We came up with a fabric idea. Uh, We were trying to make something that related to the mountains. The fabric really gave us that opportunity. And uh, the design uh, with the fabric roof eliminated 200 tons of steel, and that really brought the budget down. The result was we came in about $50 million under budget. So we dramatically saved a lot of money for the city and shortened the schedule. And the result is a great-looking, iconic building that transcends this place. Let me mention a few of your other designs outside of Colorado. And these are just a few, but Incheon International Airport in South Korea. Uh, the convention center in Palm Springs. Is it harder to design a building 
in a city where you don't live, where you're not passing by the plot of land every day? They're both a challenge. You know, I think if you're here in Colorado, you're facing things every day that sometimes are a little more difficult to see, like relating to the place and relating to the mountains, for instance, with the airport. Is that just because you take you take the place for granted after a while? or And you're kind of saturated. Your senses are kind of saturated with the place. So uh, when you go to a place like Palm Springs or Incheon in South Korea, it's easier to see the differences, particularly in another culture, in an Asian culture, in a culture like the Persian Gulf, where the differences are rather stark uh, to the way we live here. So um, it's, um, they both have challenges. Who are or have been your influences in architecture? Well, I think the architect that I think of as kind of a mentor, although I've never met him, uh, he passed away before I started practicing architecture, was Erno Saarinen. He was the architect for the St. Louis Arch, um, the um, General Motors headquarters, and uh, a number of other distinguished buildings. Why is he an inspiration? Well, I think his practice of architecture is more similar to ours in the sense that he looked at each um, commission as a problem and approached it as problem-solving rather than looking at buildings and creating them in a style, in a stylistic way. Some architects work in a stylistic way that you can very easily tell, as you said earlier, what, you know, you see a building, you know that is a Frank Lloyd Wright or a Richard Meyer building because there's a stylistic aspect. No matter what the problem is, they use the same style to create a building for that problem. Whereas uh, Saarinen approached what is the problem and then created a building that had a style that followed that. And I think our practice is much more that way. He also designed Dulles uh, in Washington, D.C., the TWA terminal uh, at JFK in New York. You design uh, airports as well. Did he inspire you perhaps to to consider public architecture or airports in in particular? Well, you know, as an architect, there's um, what commissions you actually get to work on. There's a bit of luck involved and. There's a bit of planning, I suppose. You know, I was aware of his work, uh, of course, because I've studied his work uh, intensely. TWA, which is a building that expresses flight, and the uh, Dulles Airport, which is uh, in Washington, D.C., which is also a very dramatic and iconic building. And since he did those buildings, not much happened with airports, except that they uh, began to expand and and they were um, created in a look that um, pretty much was like a grocery store. Yeah, they're you know, kind of they're boxy, big, a lot of them. Big boxes that had uh, ceilings that, that really looked like a Safeway. And so whenever we got the opportunity to refashion the Denver uh, design, that was a paramount concern was to express the place. And so, yeah, I'm sure that Saarinen had a dramatic effect on our thought process. Kurt Fentress, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. CPR's Ryan Warner speaking with Denver architect Kurt 
Fentress in 2010. Fentress will be inducted into the Colorado Business Hall of Fame this evening. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. The Colorado Department of Transportation has a problem. It's running out of money to pay for roads. Most of the funding CDOT uses for projects and repairs comes from the gas tax, and that doesn't generate the revenue it used to. Now the department is exploring creative new ways to tap into drivers' pockets. CPR's Vic Vela recently took one idea for a test drive. So I'm sitting inside my car about to plug in this device that keeps track of the miles I drive. It's kind of shaped like a box of dental floss. And it's something that CDOT says may be the future of roads funding, which is to charge drivers by the mile. The idea is you plug it in like this, and then you start your car, and then you drive. And the device tracks how far I go and how much tax I theoretically have to pay. It's a pilot program CDOT is trying out with about 100 volunteers. The department wants to answer some questions about how this would work. And when I ran the idea of a mileage tax by folks at a Denver gas station, they had questions too. When do you have to pay? Well, they're still working all that out. (laughs) The guy said his name is Mike. It was cold and he was in a hurry, so I didn't get his last name. Mike says he's glad CDOT is trying out new ways to bring in more money to pay for roads. Some places the roads are very good, and other places the roads are terrible. I mean, it's, you can't win. It's all over the place. But Mike's not sure how a road usage charge would directly impact him. Well, I'm all for that during the summer because I never drive, okay? But during the winter, I'm a skier, so I'm up in the mountains two or three times a week. You think it would even out? I don't know how to tell you the truth. Then there's Brenna Pertner. She lives in Conifer and does a lot of driving to Denver. She's worried she'd be charged more. So I guess it's maybe the most equitable way to go, but it doesn't sound great to me. I think now's a good time to talk about why CDOT is trying this out in the first place. You see, most of Colorado's road funding comes from gas taxes. But the state's gas tax hasn't been increased since 1991. And since then, inflation has gone up and construction costs continue to rise. And nowadays, there's more fuel-efficient vehicles on the roads that require fewer stops at the pump. So that's less money coming into the state. And electric vehicles don't pay any gas taxes at all. So CDOT Executive Director Shailen Batt says all of this means paying for roads is getting tougher. The point of the study is to say that 10, 15, 20 years down the road, the gas tax is not going to be a viable funding source. And so that's why we need to uh, just be, be open to alternatives. CDOT says a mileage tax would work the same as paying utilities, like water and electric. You pay for what you use. And they're testing to see if it could ultimately replace the gas tax. Oregon and California are also trying out a pay-per-mile pilot. And several other states have received federal funding to launch their own studies. Kevin Pula is with the National Conference of State Legislatures. He says states across the country are considering all sorts of new ways to pay for roads. Vehicle registration fees, tire taxes, sales tax on different products, um, even tobacco taxes, lottery taxes, 
oil and gas severances, a whole wide range of resources are going to pay for transportation. Colorado's lawmakers are currently in talks about finding new ways to fund roads, which may include some sort of sales tax increase to take to voters in November. But House Minority Leader Patrick Neville doesn't like the idea of new taxes to pay for roads. And he especially doesn't like what CDOT is trying out with this pilot. It's totally unpopular. It's an invasion of privacy. It's an increased tax. It's, quite frankly, a waste of our resources to even be doing the study in the first place. On that privacy big brother fear, CDOT's BAT says folks are already letting apps like Google Maps track them wherever they drive. As for it being a tax increase, well, BAT says before electric and hybrid cars, the gas tax was essentially a mileage tax. The more people drove, the more they paid. However I charge you based on your usage, whether I'm charging you based on the gas tax that you're paying or if I charge the miles that you're driving, if you live in a rural area and have to drive more, you're already paying more. Bat says he knows this approach to paying for roads is likely to raise a lot of questions. But he says that's why the state is studying the viability of a pay-per-mile tax in the first place. I'm Vic Vela, CPR News. And that's Colorado Matters. I'm Andrea Dukakis. 